What's going on, everybody? Welcome to an episode of Cool Talks. I'm your host, Grady Cool, and with me, I have my lovely co-host, Jack. And on this show, we like to get the perspectives of people from all walks of life in order to hear some of their perspectives and some of their life lessons and, hey, maybe apply them to ourselves. This week, we have our lovely guest, John Naltner, and he is a photographer, speaker, peace activist, and is a writer for the new book, Portraits of Peace, and we're going to be talking all about it. So, stick around. So, John, you wrote a book, Portraits of Peace. Uh, what was that about? And as I understand, it's it's part of a much larger uh, art installation. I'm not even sure if that's the right word for it. So, it's uh, what, what is this about? And then what is the overall kind of message of Portraits of Peace? What is, what is this all about? Yeah, this book is called Portraits of Peace, Searching for Hope in a Divided America. And it came out September 21st with Broadleaf Books. And it really gives the backstory and sort of follows the development of this larger project I have called A Piece of My Mind, P-E-A-C-E. And that's a, that's a multimedia arts project that uses storytelling and photography uh, to try to bridge divides and build community. So basically, 12 years ago, when I started this project, um, I was frustrated with the quality of our national dialogue. I was concerned about all the things that ask us to look at what can separate us in life, whether that's politics, ethnicity, religion, gender, class. And I wondered if there was something I could do with my skill set. Um, I've made my living as a photographer for my whole career. Uh, and I wondered if I could do something with my photography and storytelling instead of looking at what uh, divides us to try to remember what connects us. So, so basically over, you know, over a decade, I started traveling the country, drove 40,000 miles, interviewed people from all different backgrounds, asking them, what does peace mean to you? How do you work towards it in your life? What are some of the obstacles you encounter along the way? And we combined the photos and the stories, um, a little bit like Humans in New York, if you're familiar with that project. Uh, but this is focused on a single theme. Um, and we use those stories to try to talk about conflict resolution and civic responsibility and social change um, and find ways to build connections, find ways to uh, to explore conversations around some of the social challenges that we're facing as a country. Very cool. Wow, that, that sounds like a, a daunting task. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to begin. I... Well, I'm not... I'm not convinced that we're going to find the secret answer. You know, I'm not convinced right. that we're going to that we're going to fix the world. But in the process, um, you can start to see these little glimmers of hope. You can start to encounter people who are finding creative solutions to some of these really challenging issues around race and climate and uh, immigration and faith and all these different things. And uh, you're sort of joking, I know, when you say that you wouldn't know where to start, but I'll be honest, and I didn't know where to start either. You know, I was, um, but I was interested in the question. I was interested in the conversation. And so what I did was I started out by doing one interview, you know, and that interview was pretty interesting. And so then I did another one. And it all started in Minnesota, where I'm from. So it started in my own backyard, because uh I mean, I started this when the economy handed me some free time, you know, yeah. back the, the, that's a creative way to uh, say it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The, it, it's an optimistic way to say it. Yeah. But the the recession of 2008, 2009 really sort of uh, kicked us in the butt as far as assignment work goes. And so I had this free time. Uh, but because of that, I had to start out in my own backyard. 
So our first exhibits and our first book were all stories from Minnesota. And then as the project grew and as it built momentum, uh, I was able to travel across the country and we did a second book called American Stories. Um, you know, now we've just uh, we've just gone all in and we just uh, my wife and I sold our house uh, about a year ago uh, and we're living life on the road uh, in an RV now and um, and just continuing to follow stories. We're wading into like the thickest thorniest issues in the country you know we went down into mississippi to talk about confederate monuments we went into uh southern louisiana to talk about environmental land loss and down along the border to talk about immigration so we're kind of all in and um we're just going to focus on building content now for a while makes a lot of sense yeah Yeah. that's (laughs) so is the book itself basically trying to take all of this work that you've been doing and trying to put it into one place that people can read and understand or is it kind of an ending point it sounds like you're still on the road so what exactly is the book supposed to encapsulate yeah so it's it's sort of a memoir halfway through this thing you know it's gotcha. uh it, it's a retrospective and a look back but what happened with my first two books is that these were shared mostly focused on sharing the stories of other people uh, so I would intentionally quiet my voice. And the, the first two books were just a portrait, uh, a little biography, and, you know, a 500-word excerpt out of these people's stories. As a journalist, I'm, I was trained as a journalist. I've worked most of my career for national magazines and Fortune 500 companies. And in that process, I was used to quieting my voice, amplifying the voices of the people that I'm talking to. And that was all well and good, but eventually... I realized that I had something that I wanted to say as well. You know, I, I, I had learned some things about taking risks, about encountering difference, about challenging my own biases, um, about being a better ally. And I'd learned some things along the way that I wanted to share. So really this, this new book, Portraits of Peace, uh, is way more narrative driven and way less photo driven. Mm-hmm. So it's really my story about this journey across the country and these people that I've met and the wisdom that I was able to hear from their stories. So almost like a story connecting stories and making it easier to digest. Yeah, you know, there's a there's a literary technique called the hero's journey. Um, and I'm, I'm not calling myself a hero, <laughs> far from it. But, but the hero's journey is this person who is on a journey of discovery. You know, and in the process, they have some crises and there's some drama and then they have some revelations. And so really, it's my hero's journey as I'm traveling the country and meeting all of these people. And at the same time, sharing some of the wisdom and beauty that they bring out in their stories as well. I I personally have read a lot of books kind of following a very similar format. So I, I actually find that it definitely makes things a lot easier to understand. So I uh, applause. Yeah, yeah, it's it like I'm Frodo, right? I'm Frodo going yeah. down this journey. I've got all these other characters that sort of pop in along the way. I'm not right. Frodo, just clarity's sake. <laughs> yeah, so I feel like that actually kind of leads us pretty well into our next question. But so on your website, you basically you kind of stated this already, but you say that through difficult conversations, gentle humor, keen eye for beauty, Portraits of Peace captures a collage of who we are as a nation. 
And you're putting this story together that is basically your view on all of that and how you've been able to grow your view based off of all these different people that you've gotten to talk to. And I'm guessing that also incorporates some of how the country's been changing over time while you've been doing this as well. For you, what do you think we are as a nation? Oh man, that's a that's a really interesting question. I mean, we're a we're a hugely pluralistic nation. You know, we're super diverse. Whether you're whether you're talking about uh, race or sexual identity or um, politics or class, uh, faith, any of these things, we're we're super diverse. Um, and that, in and of itself, I think is a um, is a strength. But the ways that manifests itself, and the ways that we encounter one another, uh, you know, it's it's no secret that sometimes we don't do that too well. Uh, and so, <laughs> yeah. so, this 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 super diverse country that lives in this tension because that's it's part of our myth, right? That we're this melting pot. I'm not sure the melting pot is really the right <laughs> uh, imagery to use. You know, maybe salad bowl sometimes is a is, is an image that I've heard. Mm, yeah. uh, I don't know what the I don't know what the right image is, but we are we are this amazingly rich and diverse country. And what what I've found, um, not just through working on this project, but also um, working as a photographer for for my whole career. You know, we in any given month when I was a freelance photographer, I might photograph musicians and then fortune 500 executives and then homeless people and then folks with, you know, HIV AIDS and then, you know, people who drive barges down the Mississippi. So I'm, I'm dealing with this really wide uh, mix of humanity, but in the process, I found that there was beauty and wisdom in all of it, you know? And so I, I really, I really loved that diversity and i found i found that it enriched my life that it made life more fascinating and so i think when i was getting frustrated um back in 2008 when things were getting divisive you know certainly they've they've continued to get more divisive but i think um that pained me you know to see people who were tearing down a group uh for this reason or a different group for that reason knowing that i had friends in all of those groups you know and and i and i knew that this rhetoric and this polarized um you know uh dialogue wasn't really speaking truth it wasn't it wasn't speaking the sort of truth that i recognized from the people that i knew in my world and so um this is a long answer to your simple question <laughs> of who are we in the country but but i think we are a we are a complex and diverse country that is trying to figure out how to balance that well. And like any large organization or society, uh, sometimes we get it right. Uh, and very often we get it wrong. Uh, and right now we just seem to be in a point of tension where we can't quite figure out how to make all these things work well together. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a succinct answer. I feel in the, in the nature of uh, how broad it really yeah. was as a question. I definitely do like the the salad bowl uh, comparison as opposed to a melting pot. There's there's so many ways you can go with yeah. that, right? Like the top ten percent of the salad get ninety percent of the dressing, or you know, yeah. some people right. are croutons, some people are you know cherry tomatoes. It's very different. I 
Yeah, I, and you when you when you play with the melting pot thing, everything sort of becomes one and the same. And I don't think that's what we've done as a country, and I don't even think it's what we want to do. Yeah. You know what? We want to celebrate the Irish heritage, and we want to celebrate the the Buddhist faith, and we want to celebrate the you know the ranchers and the artists, and you to to let them be their own special thing, but know that when we put them together that it adds up to something even greater than the individual parts. Definitely. I it, Going with that metaphor even further, when you say <laughs> that there's like, like we say that there's this melting pot and it's not really all that accurate, I feel like there's also like, there's these glorified moments that happen where it feels like we are, where it feels like everybody's blending together, getting along really well, meaning it might be the 4th of July, or it might be, oh, we just won a war, or... Things like that where people aren't necessarily looking at everything, but it sure does feel like everybody's included. Mm. And right. I think those moments definitely make that metaphor feel like it like kind of continues onward, which I just thought is interesting, like how broken one of the most popular metaphors of all time is based off of just like subtle things like that. It's a huge cliche. I don't know how many <laughs> times I heard that, you know, just getting educated, going through school, melting pot this, melting pot that, every time. Every time history came up, it, I, I think it's definitely a pretty easy way to uh, ignore, you know, kind of going into detail about anything because, you know, it's. I think it's definitely a harder answer to talk about all the diversity when you could just melting pot together, whatever. I don't have to talk it about does it. sort of brush over the differences and the challenges that we have to navigate that stuff. You know, you're Grady, you're talking about these moments when we all come together. There's a really great book uh, by Sebastian Junger, and it's called Tribe. And um, in Tribe, he Sebastian Junger was a war correspondent, and he really talks about the two times that these social strata break down and we all become more unified. And one is during combat. Um, you know, that's not ideal. That's not something we want to strive for. Right. Uh, but it really does, you know, everybody is on, on the same team and everybody's working together towards the same goals. The other time is in, in the wake of a natural disaster. If there's a building that collapses, if there's a hurricane that comes through, if there's a flood, that people all forget about all those divisions. And I don't care if you're Democrat or Republican, I'm going to help you if you need help. Right. right? And so... Uh, the thing is that when those crises pass, we really quickly return to our little our little tribes, you know, our little silos, and it's us versus them and those people over there uh, against us. And wouldn't it be nice if we could figure out a way to have that sort of unity um, when there's not a crisis? If we could proactively develop it in our society and find tools that are going to enhance it, even when things are rolling along pretty good. Yeah, that would be pretty nice. <laughs> you you'd also mentioned earlier as part of your answer that you had not enjoyed seeing people in pain based off of a lot of the rhetoric that had been going on in the country kind of when you first started and kind of going forward. Did you experience that primarily through friends or did you have your own personal any background with that happening to you personally or people that like family happening? Oh, yeah, that's a great question and um you know, we've all experienced it. And let me let me just back up and say that I think if there's any experience that's universal from, you know, these hundreds of interviews that I've done, um, if there's any universal human experience, it's pain. 
you know, and that manifests itself differently in different people's lives. Um, and nobody really shares that same pain, but it's also not worth getting into a competition about it. But right. so, you know, I, I grew up and I was, I was a dorky middle school kid and I was, you know, a little awkward going through high school. And, um, some people would tell you that hasn't changed much, but, uh, you know, so I, so I felt left out of groups. I felt picked on. I felt marginalized in certain ways. I had, uh, you know, I was, I was not an athlete. I was, um, in band and theater. And so, uh, you know, because I was small and, uh, I don't know, people thought that I had good posture. People thought I was gay and I wasn't. Um, and and it's no big deal because I had lots of friends who were, and it's not that that bothered me, but what did bother me was being misunderstood, you know? And so I think in, in small ways and in different ways that I've, I've experienced that sort of pain and I've, I've had friend groups, that are really diverse throughout my life. And so, um, you know, when, when you see them being affected by being marginalized in different ways, you know, that's not just a theoretical thing that happens to some anonymous group over there. You know, that's something that's happening to Joe or that's something that's happening to Amani or, or, you know, it's somebody who I know and I can see how that impacts them or it's somebody, uh, from a place that I've been to, you know, I've had the good luck to travel, uh, shoot travel assignments in 38 different countries. That's and so I've been, I've been around a little bit. And so when I hear, uh, you know, some rhetoric about a place that I know to be untrue, that pains me. That's very understandable. I feel like that's a very human response. Yeah. Once you yeah, get I hope, that understanding, that's, yeah, you know, when you when you know somebody's story, when you know somebody's name and you've sat and had a meal with them, it's much harder to marginalize them. It's much harder to uh, to uh, demonize them or to hate them. And I think that that in and of itself, when I see these headlines that that are swirling around all of this nasty rhetoric, um, it does not square up with my personal experience of these people who I know. That makes a ton of sense so is it part of your goal then to uh give other people what you've learned then so they can feel the same way you do yeah when i'm working on this project uh jack there are kind of three different audiences that i consider while i'm doing the work um the first one is me because in this very real and basic way i'm trying to educate myself about the world i'm trying to have a broader experience so that I have um, more knowledge to draw from, you know? So if, if I'm, you know, in Charleston, South Carolina, I wanna understand the, the history around race. And I wanna understand that Gadsden's Wharf was the location where uh, I forget, I'm bad with numbers, but I feel like 40% of all of the enslaved people who, uh, who were brought to America came through at Gadsden's Wharf. So I wanna go and stand in that place. I wanna go to um, the World Trade Center, uh, site, you know, the 9-11 memorial and stand and experience that footprint. I want to stand along the, the border wall and meet the people who are impacted by that each and every day. So the first, first and foremost, I'm trying to educate myself. Uh, the second person I want to impact is the person that I'm interviewing, because I think, you know, uh, I feel like we all have a story to tell. We all want to be seen and recognized and valued but I feel like we don't always have that opportunity. And so when I'm interviewing somebody, 
I want them to know that I see them and I hear them and they matter. So that by the end of our engagement, they feel whole, they feel respected and, and positive about this experience. Uh, and then the third audience is the, the bigger public. As we publish books, as we produce exhibits, as I go around and do public programming, I'm hoping that if I can learn a little bit from these stories, that somebody else uh, is likely to learn a little bit as well. So that, that's kind of the goal, is to get people to slow down and listen. Uh, well, three things. So to listen deeply, to listen intentionally to stories, to be willing to challenge your own expectations and sort of do enough self-reflection where you might be able to see some of your own biases. And the third one is to keep showing up at the table because all of these issues around race, around politics, around uh, faith, you know, these things are all uh, issues that are going to need long-term solutions. And as we, as we go through the process, it's, it's not always gonna be smooth. It's gonna be bumpy sometimes, but what I wanna encourage people to do through these stories and through this process is to keep showing up at the table. If you screw up, that's okay, but own it and show up again and see if you can do a little bit better next time. Um, you know, that's really, that's really the goal of the project to see if there's a way, uh, that we can find a better way to live together. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. That's, uh, that's all. <laughs> that's <laughs> it. Okay. Yeah. I like that last point you went on though. Just showing up and being there, I feel like is very big. Like just willing to participate. Huge. Right. Next yeah. question. Yeah. Perfectly segueing into that because podcast nice professional. <laughs> yeah. So like Grady was saying, you know, if you have this kind of goal of getting everybody to understand a little better on your website, some verbiage that was included is a, a peace advocate is what you were self-describing as. Could you kind of go into what exactly that is, what a peace advocate is? Yeah, I was thinking about that a little bit, and I'm pretty sure if you asked um, 10 peace activists to define that, you'd probably get 12 different answers. But uh, I bet. But, but I really think, uh, for me, I mean, my sense of peace is communal, right? So it's not just making sure I'm okay. It's not just making sure that I have all of the resources that I need, but it's more, it's more community-based. It's more societal. So um, part of that process is making sure that all people have access to justice and the resources that they need in order to thrive. Um, if I had to really boil it down, I would say that my definition of a peace activist is someone who is concerned with the care of the bigger community. So whether that is related to um, anti-militarism, whether that is related to uh, housing issues, whether it's related to uh, immigration or mental health, whatever that issue is, if you can take that laser focus off of yourself and your own needs, and begin to consider the needs of those around you, uh, then in my world, uh, you land in that uh, definition of a peace advocate. Gotcha. I, I thought it was interesting the word you used, concerned. I feel like there's a lot of people that sometimes know that bad things are happening, but they don't always do a whole lot about it. It's like, well, that's on the news. I saw that on Twitter. Or they'll go around. There's, there's a very large stereotype for people going out there saying that everyone else is doing such a bad job and then that being kind of the extent of what they do 
Yeah. As far as the word Critics. advocate, <laughs> I, the thing that always comes to mind for me is like, I, the way I've always heard the word used is speaking up for either yourself or for somebody else or for a different issue. Do you think that having in your head that you care about an issue is enough or do you feel like people need to do something where it's beyond just saying something's bad? Yeah, I mean, we... There is oftentimes a, a serious disconnect between what we say we value and how we live our day-to-day -day lives. Right. And I think, you know, the the notion of, of being aware of it and maybe pontificating about it a little bit, that that's all well and good, but that doesn't actually do much to move the needle. In fact, you might just irritate your friends. You know, if that's <laughs> the extent of what it is... Uh, we're doing but uh for me it's it, it's about understanding the root causes and trying to shift some of uh whether it's policy whether it's human relationship whether it's you know whatever that is actually trying to shift the needle and move something and uh you know obviously awareness and education is a part of it uh but it can't stop there it has to turn into action you know um I'm well aware as I work on this project that I'm the poster child of privilege. You know, I'm this <laughs> white guy from the suburbs in middle America. Full uh, empathy. Married... <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. I wonder yeah, what it's, it's like so... being uh, three white, white dudes doing a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, but, but the question is what, what am I going to do with that um, privilege? You know, do right. I use it to to prop up my own privilege or is there a way that I can use it to amplify some voices that otherwise might not be heard I mean when I'm talking about my particular skill set um, in storytelling in in art in this media art sort of world uh, maybe there's something that I can do to amplify other voices to raise other issues that that maybe uh, historically the middle-aged white guy community just hasn't paid attention to you know, or hasn't needed to pay attention to, which is, I suppose, the definition of privilege. You know, I don't, I don't need to worry if I get pulled over by a police officer late at night. Uh, you know, I don't necessarily have to worry about my own safety the way, you know, my, my black friends might. So, um, yeah, you know, I think for every person that action is going to look different, um, whether it's somebody who wants to write letters to their legislators, whether it's someone who wants to donate money, whether it's somebody who wants to volunteer on a grassroots level. I don't think there's a, you know, if it's somebody who wants to sort of protest out on the street, I don't think there's a right way to respond to these issues. Um, all of them matter and all of them collectively move us toward the end goal. But I think it has to be more than just, being aware, you know, that's too easy. That doesn't, if you're only aware and you're not trying to actively change something, essentially, I think you're voting for the status quo. Gotcha. So like kind of so, like a bystander doesn't really affect any change in a situation. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I think that's a fair way to say it. Yeah. I, one problem that I think a lot of people have is not knowing exactly what they can do, especially without uprooting their lives and going across the world to go help somebody. I mean, right. sometimes people like just got out of med school and don't want to go do doctors without borders or things like that. What can people actually do to help 
change some of the dialogue that's been going around? Yeah, that's a really great question. And I think you're you're exactly right that sometimes we get this image of what Dr. King did or what Gandhi did or what Mother Teresa did. And we think, well, I can't do that. So I might as well do nothing. (laughs) Well, all or nothing. (laughs) You know, none none of us is is Gandhi. None of us is Dr. King. But the truth is that these small human connections that we have every day as we go through life. I mean, I'm, I'm more and more convinced as I work on this project that the root of all of this stuff is human connection, is relationship. And we, we have so many opportunities as we go through the course of the day to either sort of look down and look away as we pass people or to actually engage them. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty sure I used to drive my kids nuts. You know, we'd be on the subway. We'd be on the subway visiting New York, and there'd be this, you know, this guy with tattoos and piercings and, and, and leather standing next to me, and everybody else is doing everything, not my family, but everybody else around is doing everything they can to avoid eye contact. And I'll just, like, lean up to the guy with my map. I'm like, hey, I've never been here before, and I think I have to get off at this next stop. Is that right? Am I thinking of this right? And we we'll start this conversation just as an opportunity to talk and engage and acknowledge each other's humanity. Um, and then we get off the subway and the kids would be like, dad, you knew exactly where you were going, didn't you? I'm like, yeah, but this was a chance to connect. This was a chance to talk. And so, you know, I'm that guy in the grocery line where if somebody's got popsicles back behind me, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to say, Oh man, I love those popsicles. Aren't those great? I have those the other, you know, and just, Look for that opportunity to connect. Look for that opportunity. Because I know when people do that to me, it brightens my day just a little bit. You know, some 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 goofy guy, old guy, walked by me the other day. My wife and I were just walking down the street, and this guy uh, walks by and goes, howdy, howdy, howdy. And it was, I mean, that's nothing, right? Yeah. But it, yeah. made a, it made a smile for like an hour. Right. Two <laughs> seconds of work for an hour of result. All right. Yeah, right. And now Such he's immortalized on Cool Talks, too. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I think. And so when I think about what can people do, I mean, they can drop off a little bit of food at a food bank. They can help out a neighbor if they're, I mean, I'm from Minnesota, so people got to shovel out in, you know, their car in the winter. A lot of snow. A lot of snow. You can, you can help somebody with that. You can, you know, if you got an old neighbor next door, you can, hey, I'm running to the groceries. It doesn't matter who it is. If it's a young neighbor, you can say, hey, I'm going to the grocery store. You need me to pick up anything for you? And just those tiny little thoughtful moments of connection, I think, do a world to create Uh, a richer and stronger social fabric um, that we all benefit from. Gotcha. I feel like that's very concrete and something someone could actually walk away with, which I think is huge. Yeah, yeah, just brighten somebody's day a little bit. It's not not a lot to do, you know? Yeah, and, and, you know, for me, we all have to look at what our skill set is and what we can do for the world. For me, I had this project going, and uh, I lived in Minneapolis before we sold our house. And so when George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis, um, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to respond to that. But I brought my cameras and my, my this, this really basic studio lighting kit down to that intersection, 38th and Chicago, And I just started creating this public art project. And I just, 
you know, I would try to make eye contact with people and I would just say, invite them to participate. And I'd do a black and white portrait. And I would, um, I would ask them, you know, what do you want to say? Just that simple, wide open uh, in 25 words or less. And people would share a quote and I'd do a portrait. And over the course of a week, we came up with 50 responses that on the one hand, didn't do anything to bring George Floyd back. Right. But it, um, it was an act of bearing witness. It was an act of community listening and a way to acknowledge the pain and frustration that was going on in that space. Um, toward the end of the summer, I found this huge white wall on the side of a church just north of that intersection. Uh, and for 10 nights in a row, we projected all of those portraits up on the side of the church um, so that as people were driving up and down the road, they'd be able to see them. And uh, just just as an act of bearing witness and community art to say, I see you, I hear you, and you matter. You know, so we all have to look we all have to look at what our our unique skill set is. If you do accounting, volunteer a little bit of accounting for somebody. You know, if you're if you're if you're great at cooking, you know, cook a meal for somebody who's feeling feeling down. There's uh, there's a million ways to do it. Gotcha. And everybody can do it uh, their own way. Yeah, yeah. In fact, it's better when you do it your own way. You don't try to fit into a mold. But you just find your little way that you can brighten somebody's life, and that's uh, that's magic. Definitely, it's really great. While so, you're looking for the question, well, I'm just going to add one more thing. Sorry. Gotcha. <laughs> at, at the end of the day, that's what a piece of my mind tries to do. We try to find examples of people who have who've done something well, who found a way to. Uh, to be positive, even if they um, have a terminal diagnosis, to have found a way not to hate, even though maybe they've been through the Holocaust, to to forgive in unforgivable situations. We we find examples where people have succeeded, and we share those, and we try to amplify those so that we can use that for our model of success. We can use that sort of to shine a beacon on um, how we can move forward better together. So as part of this big trip that you did, there's these events that you host where it's basically showing people all of these portraits that you've done and all these stories of different people. What are the logistics behind putting together an art installation and who attends and who do you want to attend these events? Oh, well, A, we want everybody to attend. Well, uh, yeah. <laughs> there we go. As many as possible. Yeah, so... Um, so we engage communities in in a few different ways. And of course, all of that has been put on hold with COVID, right? Because when when you base your, uh, pro, your project around public programming, but the public can't get together, well, then you got to take a little break. But, Makes um, sense. But like in 2019, we led programming in, in 20 different states and on four different continents. And so we will install these traveling exhibits in public spaces. Uh, I do lectures and workshops around storytelling as a way to uh, bridge divides and build community. And then we we produce on-site stories. And so if a community wants to talk about race, we might ask them what's the unique opportunity or challenge of talking about race at this moment in history. In the course of a day, 
we can photograph and take responses from 40 or 50 or 60 people. And then we will quickly produce those stories into a video and we'll share them back to the community. So we do this at colleges and universities, at high schools and middle schools. Uh, we do it at conferences across the country. Um, and we do it at churches and community centers. So really any place that people gather and want to want to facilitate dialogue and build community in their circles. Um, and so, you know, very often I'll go into a college or a community for a week or sometimes a month at a time, and we'll set up this exhibit. I'll start doing workshops around town. Uh, we'll do some of these studios. And then at the end of it, um, we'll gather for a big public event and we'll, uh, we'll share that back to the community. So when you, when you talk about the logistics of putting together an art installation, uh, you got to think about a few things. You have to think about how you're going to produce it. You have to think about how you're going to uh, ship it, you know, move it around from place to place. You got to think about how you're going to install it. Um, some of my exhibits hang on the walls. Some of the exhibits are sort of freestanding to go in a lobby. And some of them, uh, you know, we, we project. Um, so what have we got? Produce it, move it around, install it. And then the fourth thing is figuring out how to engage people with it. You know, it does no good if it just sits in the lobby and everybody walks right past it, you know? And so over time, uh, we've screwed up in a lot of different ways. You know, we have, we have been ineffective in a lot of different ways. Yeah. <laughs> but every time you do that, I mean, you sort of suggested this at the beginning, right? Oh, we've done this enough that now we've screwed up in almost every way possible. And that allows you to do it better the next time. Right. You know, so so right out of the gates, I mean, I, I'm a sort of a classically trained photographer. So when I started thinking exhibit, that had to mean a, a, a rectangle print that hangs on the wall. Mm. Right. And so the first gallery or the first exhibit was just a gallery exhibit that hangs on the walls. Well, I figured out really quickly that not everybody has 150 feet of wall space to hang an exhibit. <laughs> you know, so you right. might have a conference that goes into a rented space and they can't pound a nail in the wall. Or you might have somebody in the student leadership program who's interested in the project, but they don't control the art gallery. And, uh, and so they can't get the art gallery person to agree to have the exhibit. So, because we encountered that stumbling block, we knew that we had to create an exhibit that was freestanding. So the next one we built, we built so that it would just stand by itself. And so we can put it in libraries and student unions and corporate lobbies and any place that has a big open space. You know, we, we figured out eventually that this was kind of a passive project, you know, that people would come and they would look at the stories and then they would walk away. But we wanted something that was a little bit more interactive. So that's when we started doing our studio series, where we would invite people from that place to also share a story. And so it's, it's trial and error. And I think, um, again, I'll go back. I think it was you, Jack, that said, you know, I wouldn't know where to start. And uh, for me, it's a process of, of walking down the path until you hit a wall and then backing up a couple of steps and then saying, oh, maybe if I turn over this way a little bit, I won't hit the wall. And you continue to find new ways to sort of manifest it and, and new ways to, to engage with it that's more and more effective with communities as you go.
Interesting. So what you're saying is the, uh, the latest kind of evolution of your art installations is, uh, is partially community driven. Then you get stories and portraits from the people in the area that you'd want to be attending. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when I was down in Mississippi, you know, we, we wanted to talk about race and we, um, we set up our studio process at the base of a Confederate statue on a courthouse lawn. And we asked people, what does this statue mean to you? And I didn't, I didn't know if that would be a welcome process. I didn't know if I would get beat up. I didn't know. Right. I didn't know if people, I didn't know if people would show up and participate, you know, but over the course of a couple of days, we got, you know, we got 40 people who shared stories and, and so, and we did the same sort of thing down along the, the wall, um, uh, down in Arizona along the, the Mexican border. And we, I did the same sort of thing at a, uh, at a drop-in center for people who were experiencing homelessness. And we, we continue to go places where people are not routinely heard, where people do, do not routinely get the spotlight. You know, one of the things I really like about this project is um, so often people look at uh, Gandhi and Dr. King and uh, maybe celebrities, maybe political leaders, uh, look to them for solutions. But what I love about this project is that the people who I interview are not celebrities. They're not famous. They're not, they're not these political um, leaders. They're regular people. And I think it's really important that we don't give our power away to the famous people that we, you know, it's good to have role models. I have my own role models and heroes in life, but I also think it's really important that we recognize that we each have a lot of power, that we each can do really amazing things. And, and one of the goals of a piece of my mind is to lift that up and to, to celebrate the regular people who are doing really amazing things, or even just really small and humble things in the world and recognize what a difference that can make. Yeah. Gotcha. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, really nicely segueing into our next question here. You mentioned uh, some role models that you had. Where, where do you take your inspiration from? Who and how did you get your projects and your art just the way it is? Yeah, when you, you know, we could talk about role models in sort of the, the social movements world and, you know, all the names I said, Dr. King, John Lewis, um, you know, uh, Gandhi, these sorts of folks. But from a photographic and a visual standpoint, um, I have a deep love for sort of the tradition of photojournalism, telling stories with images. So that's people like Dorothea Lange, uh, William Albert Allard, who shot a lot for National Geographic, Sebastian Salgado, uh, Mary Ellen Mark, those sorts of people who have been my photographic heroes. Um, and then from a storytelling standpoint, uh, there's this guy named Studs Terkel. He's no longer alive, but he, uh, I don't know if you know that name, but he was an oral historian and he worked for uh, the Chicago public radio station. And he, look, the first book I ever read of Studs Terkel was called Hard Times, and it was about the Depression. And I had been through history class and I learned all the statistics and the dates about the Depression and then promptly forgot everything. But in one ear out the other. Book, yeah, yeah, that stuff doesn't stick with me. It doesn't move me. It doesn't sit on my heart. But then Studs Terkel had done these interviews with, you know, a milkman and a, a professional pitcher for a baseball team and a prostitute and a young child and 
all of these people to hear what their experience of the depression had been and understand what it meant to them. And that brought all of these facts and statistics to life, right? It fleshed it out. It gave it some color. It gave it some humanity. And so Studs Terkel has always been my storytelling hero. I think someday if somebody calls me Studs Terkel with a camera, I'll be thrilled to death. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. So there's a lot of these figures where drawing inspiration from people where you see their work and you go, man, that's amazing. I want to do that. Was there anything in your own personal life that drove you to want to do photography, storytelling, trying to paint a picture about society? Mm, that's a great question. I think, so my dad was a social worker and my mom was an educator. And so even though we were also very German, so we just didn't talk a lot, right? There was a lot of stony cold silence in our house, but it was, <laughs> but there was always this sense of the common good, always this sense of community well-being through his social work and her education. So I think that was sort of a base level experience. But for me, um, I always had a chronic case of wanderlust. You know, we would travel every summer and my parents didn't have much money. Uh, and so we would just go camp at the national parks and we'd go hiking. You know, we just had a little pop-up camper uh, and we'd go for two or three weeks and we'd just go hike in the national parks. And I was, I was fascinated by these different landscapes and this great beauty that we have in this country. And so I developed this chronic case of wanderlust. Um, and always as I was growing up, I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool if I could find a way to make a living just by sort of wandering around and exploring things? And, um, and my dad would say, well, that's not the way the real world works. And I would say, well, but could it? Why can't it? And so I was a little bit of a dream, I think, in that regard. Um, but then uh, as I got into college, I started out as a music major. That wasn't the right fit. I wanted to be a forest ranger. I didn't like science enough. But this <laughs> journalism world, I found it really gave me an excuse to explore anything. You know, if I was interested in rodeos, well, I could I could go photograph a rodeo. If I was interested in uh, fishing, which I'm not, I could go <laughs> I could go photograph fishing. But, but you it, know now. <laughs> it, but now I know. But it gave me this excuse. It gave me almost this license to go explore almost anything. And so that's that's where I got. I always dabbled in photography, but that was my aha moment where I thought, oh man, this is my ticket. This is my way to go explore anything I want to explore. And that means you have to hustle, right? you got to find a way to get an assignment to go do this, or you have to shoot it and hope you can sell it later or whatever it is. Um, but there's nothing wrong with hustling. <laughs> yeah, it's necessary to succeed at pretty much anything. Pretty much anything, yeah. 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 Ta-da, for example. <laughs> I feel like you've covered a lot of this kind of – Throughout a lot of what you've said today, I feel like I've definitely taken away some things that I can do to impact, you know, community around me on a bigger scale as well, and just kind of a bigger conversation going on. But to make things more concise, it's something that people could walk away with. What type of impact are you trying to make? The impact I'm trying to make is to help people understand that if there are problems in the world, they're not somebody else's problems. You know, there are problems. You know, the, 
I w- when I was down in Louisiana, I was talking to a guy um, who who lives. I, I mean, if you go to New Orleans and then you keep going south about a hundred miles to the end of a dead end road, it's pretty much water and a little bit of land. And you know, it's a lot of it is washing away. And and when the big hurricanes come in, um, a lot of the native vegetation has died off because of saltwater intrusion. And um, this guy said, "Look." you you live in minnesota you think that what happens down here isn't going to affect you he said but when climate refugees are real when we can't live here anymore we're coming towards you you know we're coming to your backyard so this is not louisiana's problem this is not a coastal problem this is a problem that's going to impact all of us so that's just one example but but really that's what i want people to hear that if there are challenges in the world that these are our challenges and if they're going to be solutions they're going to have to be our solution that we can't wait around for somebody else to fix it you know that we can't wait around for some institution to make the change but there are things that we each can do in our lives to make a positive impact and if we each do a little bit the heavy lifting gets a little bit easier yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's uh, that's a pretty reasonable way to look <laughs> at it. <laughs> yeah. All right, we only have a few extra billion people to let in on that secret, and then we will have <laughs> yeah. done our, our work. There we go, almost right. there. Spreading the message. Take some time. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else you want to touch on before we wrap things up? Um. You know what? We talked about the book early on. Uh, The newest book is called Portraits of Peace, Searching for Hope in a Divided America. Uh, People can find that on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, anywhere that they buy books. Uh, They can follow the project on our website, which is just apieceofmymind.net. Again, it's P-E-A-C-E. Or um, if you don't want to type all those letters, you can just do the acronym A-P-O-M-M.net. Uh, and that brings you to all of our social media, to Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and LinkedIn. Uh, I'm most active on Instagram. It's a visual platform. I'm a visual guy, but it ripples out into all the other places, too. I'd love it if people followed along. Um, and, uh, you know, we are, Karen and I are now one year into our RV life. And uh, we're up in, in northern Washington right now. And we're just about to set head south. Uh, to Southern California, where uh, there in Arizona, we'll do some of our uh, some of our winter work. Oh, so I hope uh, people will follow, check out the stories that we're doing. Well, you picked a good Very time nice. to come to Arizona. <laughs> yeah, it's real nice down here right now. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't want that 120 that you have in Austin. <laughs> Makes uh, a down. lot of sense. Alrighty. Well, if you guys enjoyed, make sure to hit that like button, subscribe for more videos in the future, and we will see you all in the next episode. Bye.